I'll be reading today from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, and even outside the door, uh, not even room there. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were all sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Thank you, Chris. We are starting a new series this week called Miraculous. We're going to just look at different miracles that Jesus performed throughout the course of his time on earth, his ministry. Uh, here on this planet, and we are going to take some time to look at what does that reveal to us about Jesus? What does that show us about his person, his character, his attributes as God? And today's story, as you saw, is somewhat surprising. There's some, some unexpected twists and turns in this story, and we're going to talk about those in just a few minutes. Um, but really what it comes down to is what the, the man and his friends approached Jesus with is the issue that they thought was on the table was not the issue that Jesus saw as the most important thing in that situation. There, many years ago, or a handful of years ago now, uh, I started experiencing some pain in my leg. It's like, what is going on with my right leg? Like, it just hurts. It doesn't seem to be, like, attached to anything. Like, it, it, out of nowhere, it'll just start hurting. And I can't, like, really readjust, and all of a sudden, the pain kind of fades or goes away. It just is constant. I'm like, what is going on? So I thought there was, like, sort of a tight muscle going up the side of my leg, and so I started trying to stretch it out, and I was asking people if, if they've ever experienced anything like this. And as I started asking questions and talking to even my doctor and eventually ending up in PT, what I found out was that the leg issue was not a leg issue at all. What was it? It was a back issue. Some people know it was a back issue. This was a lower back issue. There was a disc that was pushing on, uh, on your nerve here, uh, the sciatic nerve, and it's something called sciatica. This is, this is a pain that happens that can shoot all the way down to sometimes people's foot, and it's just extreme pain. There's feels like there's nothing you can do to ease that pain because moving your leg around doesn't do the trick. It's, it's something completely different. So the issue you think you have, the issue I thought I had when I started asking the question and experiencing the pain of that was not really the underlying issue that needed to be addressed at the end of the day. It's something different. And we see that that is true 
for us spiritually as well as we walk through this life, as we, as we think about what it means to follow after Jesus, as we, uh, as we look at our lives and we want uh, to, to experience change and transformation. I mean, you can go to any bookstore across town. It, they still exist. Um, and you can look at the self-help shelves and there's, they're just packed full of things that you can do to try to help yourself through something. But at the end of the day, whatever it is that you think your problem is, Jesus would say, it's not really the problem. There's something else that's going on behind the scenes. Again, in this passage, starting in verse 1, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So Jesus comes back to Capernaum. If you're thinking about um, Jesus' home, it's Nazareth. And so this passage can read a little bit in a confusing way. He's from Nazareth. It says he came home to Capernaum. Um, Here's the situation. Jesus, when he started his ministry, as you read through the Gospels, it it starts to become clear as you piece things together. Jesus set up his ministry center out of Capernaum. And that's likely Peter's house. It's, there's a small possibility that maybe Jesus also had a place to call his own in Capernaum at this time. But it's most likely Peter's house that's sort of the hub, the home base for his ministry. So when the disciples and, and Jesus go home, it's to Capernaum. And, and he was just here. If you're reading the Gospel of, of Mark, Mark moves quickly, by the way. We're in chapter 2, but this doesn't happen until like chapter 9 in Matthew. Mark moves quickly through events, and uh, he keeps things moving. In chapter 1, Jesus has already been doing ministry in Capernaum. That's why it says he returned. So he's back in this place where people have experienced him. And it says that he was preaching the word to them. He preached the word to them. Literally in the Greek, it says he was speaking to them the word. And what he was speaking, this kind of idea of the word, the logos in this sense, is that he was giving them a message of salvation, a message of understanding God's plan of salvation to them. He was proclaiming the coming kingdom. He was teaching them uh, about salvation. And so what happens next really uh, plays into Jesus' teaching in a lot of ways. And we also see here, Jesus is drawing a crowd, right? This happens a lot during his ministry. Sometimes Jesus thins the crowd. It almost seems like on purpose, he'll give a really tough teaching and people are like, I, I don't know what that was about. And they stop, they like walk away. But in this, in this case, and in a lot of cases, Jesus is magnetic. He is drawing people to himself. And I, I think that the, the reason that he's magnetic, the reason that people are drawn to him, is probably has a lot to do with his person, like the way he carries himself, completely non-anxious presence. People hear his teaching and it makes sense. But not only does it make sense, it says, they say that it has authority. It's different. There's something unique about Jesus. In fact, the last time I I referenced this in Mark chapter 1, he was in Capernaum before. The last time he was in Capernaum, here's what the people ended up saying about his teaching uh, in in verses uh, 27 and 28 of Mark chapter 1. The people were so amazed about his teaching that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So Jesus is bringing a new kind of teaching and a new kind of power and a new kind of authority. And at the end of the day, what we're going to see this morning is this all comes from his identity as the Son of God, as God in the flesh who has come to appear to people who desperately need him. So back to our text in Matthew or in Mark chapter 2, uh, verse 3. It says, Some men came 
bringing to him, bringing to Jesus, a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, uh, get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man, the mat was lying on. Now this is, this is a bizarre story. I mean, these are people who are going to great lengths. It says that there are some men who brought a paralyzed man and four of them were carrying the corner. So we don't know if there were just four or it could have been like a group of eight and four were doing the carrying duties. It's a little bit ambiguous as you read it. Um, but there was a group of men bringing their friend, bringing someone they knew to Jesus. And they got there and it was packed. It was packed. I mean, the place was jammed. Again, the people are outside. Jesus is drawing this big crowd, but they don't give up. Now, you have to know a little bit about uh, a, a home during this time period and in this place. What would happen is generally a home is going to be one room, maybe two, and it's a pretty small, very modest place, just enough to give shelter, but it's going to have a flat roof. In general, they'll have flat roofs, and a lot of times there's an external, like there's a staircase even maybe on the outside of the home to get up and access this roof. On the roof, there's going to be beams, wooden beams, and across the wooden beams, they may lay some kind of a tile, a clay tile of some kind, followed by some mud and thatch, like just to kind of keep things, keep any moisture or or any rain out. It doesn't rain very often, but if it does, they've got to be able to to keep the place dry, and they're right on the Sea of Galilee, which which was known to sometimes get uh, some big storms coming out of nowhere, as we see other places, and we'll see later in this series uh, what can happen on the Sea of Galilee. And so they... That, that's what this home would have been like. Up, up top, it would have been like a mixture of straw and mud and clay and all this stuff. And then underneath that, maybe a tile, keeping all of that from falling in with, uh, with beams supporting the whole structure of the roof. But you could go up there and you could use the roof as additional living space, additional place, you know, nice patio type of deal. And uh, so they, you could go up onto your roof. These people went up onto the roof and they started digging away at the thatch and the mud and probably inside the house as they're listening to teaching they're hearing something going on. They're like, oh, these people must have a rat problem. And, um, and, but then some dirt and mud starts falling on their heads as they're listening to Jesus. And it had to have been so disruptive. Like, can you imagine something like this going on even in a setting like we are right now? We're at church. Someone's talking. Most people are listening. And then all of a sudden, this interruption happens. There was a time not too long ago, I was at a musical and it was getting to like the very end of the musical, like the climax of the whole play. And, and everyone's like, most people there were probably seeing this for the first time and they're excited about it. They're, they're happy to be there. But then all of a sudden in the final song, the person in the, directly behind uh, my seat went unconscious and it, it was like looking like real serious situation and so there was some stirring and we turn around and this this man's like his color is off and he's he's not looking so good and his wife is like starting to panic a little bit and so uh, people are like oh we this play needs to stop in fact, my sister-in-law yelled out, we need the lights across this play. This is 2,200 people theater, uh, in this theater. And imagine if they bring the lights up and they, they come in, they rush over and some medical people come and attend to this guy and he's like, yeah, it's actually not a big deal. It's a chronic thing. I deal with this every day. Like everyone would be furious, right? Like this is not an emergency situation. Well, it was in this case. And the happy ending of that story is that he was okay. He was okay. There's something about low blood sugar or something. It was an unexpected thing, but he, he, he seemed like he was completely fine by the time he left. The play resumed. Everything was fine. But in this situation that we see in Mark's gospel, they're bringing a guy who, he didn't just have an accident, it doesn't seem. It seems like he has been 
on this mat for some time, and these guys are just so bold. They approach Jesus, when they can't get to him, they dig through a ceiling in the middle of his teaching to get to him. I'm just going to announce this right now. I'm not Jesus. If someone did that, uh, I would be upset. Um, I'd be a little bit ticked off. But Jesus rolls with it. He sees this, their, their faith, the text tells us. He sees their faith, and, and he rewards it. We're going to see that in just a second. Now, here's the deal. These guys... Whoever they are, we don't know much about them, but we know that they're bold. We know that they must care. We know that they are pushing through some obstacles. And what I, what I conclude as I see that is that we all, we all should have bring them, bring you to Jesus friends. I'm calling it bring you to Jesus friends. We all need to have bring you to Jesus friends. Like we all should have those structures in our lives because we go through stuff right? Our lives are not clean. They're not straight and up and to the right at all times. There's, there is stuff that happens in life. We may have a crisis of faith someday. We may have circumstances in our life that come up that require people to surround us in love and in prayer and in help and whatever that might look like. We need to have bring you to Jesus friends. I, I'd say, I can tell you firsthand, we need to have bring you to Jesus friends. The last few years, uh, ever, you know, since we started this church back in 2020, there's been a lot of ups and downs. Even in my personal life, separate uh, from stuff that's going on here at the church, there's been ups and downs. There's been some really, probably the heaviest, not probably, 100%, the heaviest stuff that our family has ever had to deal with and hopefully ever will have to deal with happened in the last couple of years. And we have had people around us, surrounding us, who are able to come alongside, they, they are bring, bring you to Jesus kind of friends. And when we are struggling or we are having a hard time, we need extra people to be praying for us, they are there. You can remember being surrounded by the people in our life group and just have them put hands on us and pray about some situations that were going on in our life. And you cannot replace that. We also happen to be super blessed with really strong family structures and all of that, but we need to have those people who, who grab you by the shoulder and point you to where Jesus is and walk you to him. Sometimes that will happen because your circumstances are going crazy and, and you need someone to point you in the direction for faith. You need to lean on their faith. When, when this, what's about to happen is Jesus is, it's going to say, Jesus saw their faith. It's a collective thing in this situation. I imagine it includes the faith of the paralyzed man, but it certainly includes the faith of his friends. It's almost like he's drawing on their faith account in this moment. He's making a, a withdrawal on their account, and they are providing the faith that he needs in this circumstance. They're able to, he's able to lean on them. We need bring you to Jesus kind of friends. Not only do we, do we need to have those friends in our life, we need to be those friends in our lives to other people as well. Because there's so many perspectives in the story. This is what I love about it. You can think about it from the, from the seat of the paralyzed man. And in that sense, we need to have these kind of bring you to Jesus friends. But you can also think of this story from the perspective of the friends who, themselves who brought this man to Jesus. And we, and we need to be that kind of friend to people around us. Are we pointing other people to Jesus? Are we bringing other people to Jesus? We don't know what this group of guys knew about Jesus. They may have seen him or heard him, maybe last time he was in town. Maybe they just knew about his reputation. We don't know. I know one thing, they did not have all of the answers, but they were willing to bring their friend to Jesus. We need to be, bring you to Jesus kind of friends to people around us. It's, it's what we're called to be in our lives, to both fellow believers and people who don't know Jesus yet. We are called to be bring you to Jesus' friends. Maybe you have someone in your life right now, maybe they're going through a tough time. 
maybe things are difficult. Maybe they're having struggles in their faith and you're just kind of giving them, giving them the space to let them work it out. Just ask God, what, what would you have me do to come alongside that person? Maybe you have some people in your life, we talk about our top three all of the time, that we're, we're trying to be intentional with three people, not to turn them into projects. They are people. We love them because they're people. But we're also trying to be intentional to show them the way to Jesus and introduce them to Jesus when the time comes to do that. We're trying to be intentional with that. So we need to be people who bring others to Jesus. We need to be bring you to Jesus kind of friends. Verse five, I've been referencing this. It says this, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, child, your sins are forgiven. Now this is an unexpected response. I have to imagine it was unexpected for the paralyzed man himself, for the friends who brought him, probably for the crowd as well. And certainly we know for one group of people it was unexpected, not, and for them it was in a negative way. We're going to see that in a second. But this, was, this took everyone by surprise who's watching this scene play out. Because why are the friends bringing this man on the mat, digging a hole in the roof and lowering him in front of Jesus? Why are they doing that? Because they want him to treat what they perceive to be his greatest need in life. Like they, they want him to get treatment for that. That is his physical ailment of not being able to walk. I'm imagining that's why he was along for the ride. Maybe he had no choice in the matter. They could have made him go there. Uh, he wasn't going to be able to stop them. But at, at the same time, I'm imagining he was anxious to experience something in his life that might bring transformation in that sense. But Jesus looks at him. He sees the mat. He sees that he can't stand up. And he says, child, your sins, your sins are forgiven. Jesus cuts through to something that's even a greater need than what was going on physically. We need to understand this about ourselves and about other people. Again, there's a lot of perspectives here. So first, from our, the perspective of, of the paralyzed man, our greatest need, our greatest need is to be right with God. That's your greatest need, that's my greatest need, is to be right with God. And a lot of times we look at our lives and we go, no, my, my greatest need right now is I need a few extra bucks in my checking account, or I need a little bit more free time, or I've got this relational struggle I'm going through, or I need a new job, or I need whatever it might be. We look at our lives, we think we have a very specific need. And we may have those needs. I'm not trying to, to downplay those. I mean, this man was paralyzed. That's a significant need. But our greatest need is to be made right with God, to have our sins forgiven, <laughs> to become drawn into relationship with him. Why is that our greatest need? Because it far outlasts all those other needs we were just talking about. Even for this man, it far outlasts his physical ailment of not being able to walk. This is an eternal need. And Jesus cuts through all of that and he says, you, you think that your greatest need is that you are constrained to this mat and that you cannot walk. I'm telling you your greatest need is that you need a relationship with God. You need to be made right with God. And so I'm going to forgive your sins because based on your faith and the faith of your friends. That's, a, that's an un unexpected moment, and it tells us a lot about Jesus' priorities. We, we usually have an idea of what our greatest need is, but it, it ultimately, at the end of the day, our greatest need is to be right with God. From the perspective of the friends who brought him, our friend's greatest need is also to be right with God. Now, you can substitute any word for friends, our coworker, our neighbor, our family member, whatever. That's the people around us. That's their greatest need as well. 
And certainly, uh, I think we're all here because we want to learn to be loving people. We want to be people who, who have compassion for others. We want to be people who care well for other people. And I, I believe that Jesus would tell us that the best way to show love to any person in our life is to introduce them to Jesus, our Savior. Not because we know something that, or, or better in some way, but it's because we've had our lives changed and transformed by this person. And therefore, we pass that along to someone else who is also in need of that. Sometimes we live in close proximity with people and we have a whole long list of what we think their greatest need is as well. Well, if they would just, if they could only, if they would just stop, whatever it is, we have this list. But at the end of the day, once again, their greatest need is to be made right with God. And a lot of times the rest of it takes care of itself. And again, not all of those things are, that's not always a small list. Some of those things are significant. And I'm not saying we ignore those things in order to introduce them to Jesus. We address both, and we do that at the same time. Verse six, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Blasphemy is when someone puts themselves in the position of God or takes God out of the position of authority and gives it to somebody else. And in this sense, he's, they believe he's blaspheming because he's doing something that really only God can do. They're saying, who's allowed to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. But this man is here seeing the man being lowered and then he's forgiving him. How does that work? We, only God can forgive sins. And they're actually very accurately portraying what Jesus is trying to say. They are not wrong. They're 100% on point here with what's going on. They're tracking with the argument. They understand the argument maybe better than anybody else or they understand what Jesus is doing and saying better than anybody else in the room. He is claiming divinity. All throughout his ministry, Jesus would do and say things in such a way that would, the religious teachers would accuse him of blasphemy, claiming to be God because that's exactly what he was doing. And so he, he was making a case for his divinity here in this text as he, as he presents to them this, or this, this freeing from sins for this man that's in front of them. Now, we see that there's a response from the crowd and we're not, we're not given the specifics of the response from the religious teachers in this scene, but we know it's probably not positive because from, Matthew, or from Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, not a huge stretch of scripture, not a lot of words there, there are five arguments or interactions with the religious teachers, five disagreements between Jesus and religious teachers that occur in those verses. Five. And, it, and some of them are about fasting, some of them are, are about the Sabbath, but it ends, it ends with this idea uh, in, in Matthew, or Mark chapter, I keep saying Matthew, Mark chapter 3 verse 6, it says, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. It concludes with this, this plan, this plot to try to put Jesus to death. They are not happy with what they're experiencing. They're not happy with what they're seeing. So even though they're seeing Jesus stand in front of them, forgive someone's sins, and then what happens next, they still aren't going to the right place with this. Verse 6, Mark chapter, chapter 2, verse 6, once again. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why did this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. Again, they're tracking. They're on track with what Jesus is trying to say. 
and they are calling into question his identity. Do you have the right to say that? Only God can say that. So what does Jesus do next? He validates that identity. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit this was what they were thinking in their hearts. So it's always dangerous to have thoughts around Jesus. And the reality is we, we are always in the presence of Jesus. He knows what we're thinking. He knew what they were thinking. And he does this multiple times in the Gospels. He reads people's minds. He knows what they're thinking. And he anticipates that. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what, what it was they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all, and this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So the the religious teachers, they see Jesus validate his claim. Basically, he says, which is easier to say, to forgive his sins or to heal him? In their mind, they're saying, well, it's a lot harder to heal him. A lot harder. And Jesus is thinking, They're equally easy for me because I'm God. And both are valid. But they're thinking, the the religious teachers are thinking, you can't do, you can't heal him. But you you can say you forgave his sins, but it's not going to really mean anything. But Jesus validates his forgiving of sins by now proving who he is, who he says he is, who he's claiming to be. And he heals the man right there on the spot. So he's validating his identity as the son of God. If, this, if Jesus is the Son of God, then that changes everything. And that means for us that everyone's greatest need is met only in Jesus. C.S. Lewis, classically, you've probably heard this before if you've been going to church for a long time, but he, he painted this picture for us that we don't have every option available to us when it comes to identifying who Christ is. Because there are a lot of people, and even maybe more and more these days, who are saying, well, I think he was a good moral teacher. He's probably a good guy, but I, I don't think he was God. Well, that's really not an option that we have. As we look at the life of Christ, we look at the claims that he made. And C.S. Lewis pointed this out. He has to either be a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. We have to choose between those three. If he's a lunatic, it's, it's just that he thought he was God. But then we shouldn't pay him any attention. If he's a liar, he's claiming to be God to kind of create some sort of following. And uh, we should also, we should disregard him because of that, because he's not being truthful. But if he's not either of those two things, and I would argue it's very clear with how his story goes that he's not a lunatic and he's not a liar, then we have to conclude that he is Lord and he's worthy of, of our lives, and that he is, the, he is the way that everyone's greatest need is met, only through Jesus. But I think about his heart, even for the religious teachers listening in. It says that everyone was in awe in this moment, and the people in general at least started praising God. But we also see the way that these interactions go. This is not the end of the fights between, and the disagreements, and the attempts to trap, and all of that that happens between Jesus and the religious types. And so we know there remains brokenness there and disconnection between what they're seeing and what they're choosing to actually see. And it concludes with them, at the end, they're successful, right? At the end of the Gospels, they're successful with taking the life of Christ. They plot and eventually they succeed in that. And yet that's not what Jesus wants for them. He, he calls out to them, 
uh, over and over, and he's actually making a plea for them as well. We see him disagree with them a lot, but he also has a heart for them. I think of Matthew 23. We, we did a series on the seven woes of Matthew 23 uh, a little while back, but it concludes as Jesus calls them out, he pronounces these woes, these statements of judgment on the religious teachers. And it concludes with this thought in verse 37. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how, I have, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. He's seeking for willingness in their hearts to take a step of faith. And it juxtaposes really strongly with the faith of these, of these people who brought the, the paralyzed man to Jesus. Their faith is strong. When he sees their faith, it moves Jesus. But when he sees the lack of faith in these religious teachers, it moves Jesus in a different way. And he's just calling out, even to them, who were really, if anyone's his enemy in the Gospels, it's clearly the religious teachers. But he's still calling out and yearns and his heart is breaking for, for them as well. And we also see in this passage that Jesus uses his favorite title for himself, which we see uh, 81 total times in the Gospels. The, the title is Son of Man. Jesus uses the title Son of Man to address himself. He says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We see him use this about himself 81 times. It's a little bit perplexing for us. We, we're like not really sure a lot of times what that means. The, it would have it sounded like something to these religious teachers and they would have known some passages where that might have been drawn from. In different places in the Old Testament, it can mean different things. It can just be referring to a person, a human being, but it also has some messianic ties, especially in the book of Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14, Daniel says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There are messianic ties to this title, son of man. And yet, to a lot of ears, especially ours today in the modern world, but also many who were potentially the audience of Jesus, it was a little bit, a little bit confusing. And you wonder, why did he use this particular title uh, instead of just saying Messiah or Christ? I think there's, there's a lot of reasons that we could consider. But I think it's kind of like the parables. You know, he did a lot of teaching in the form of parables where he would tell a story that was like an earthly story but had sort of a, a, a heavenly or a spiritual meaning to it. And he did this because he was giving people the opportunity to hear if they chose to hear. He was giving people the opportunity to see if they wanted to see. But he was also giving people the opportunity to reject it and say no and to, to allow it to be veiled, those realities, to them. And so in the same sense, he's announcing who he is, but he's also requiring that you take a step closer to get a little bit of a closer look. And he's not going to make it, he's not going to make it plain to every single person listening. We need to lean in in order to see who he is. But he does make his identity clear. He does make his, his uh, position clear. Because of Jesus being who he is, we need to know that he is the place where our sins, for our rightness with God, other people's as well. It needs to come through him. 
And he did all of this when he went to the cross. This morning, we're gonna participate in an ancient practice that Jesus instituted himself, it called communion. And it's just an opportunity for us to reflect on the, on the sacrifice of our Lord who, set, who looks upon each of us and says, child, your sins are forgiven if we're willing to come to him with repentant hearts and seek that forgiveness and have that faith that he saw expressed in that room. And so as we approach him with faith, as we approach him seeking healing, he will, he will look down on us and say, your son, son, child, daughter, your sins are forgiven. It says in Mark chapter 14, verse 22, while they were eating, they were the disciples and they were together with Jesus on his last night before being arrested. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that you took that time to come to be with your people, your creation, who had turned away from you. Your, your word tells us that all of us were enemies of God at one time. And yet, even though we were your enemies, Lord, you came to give yourself so that we could be made right with you. That we could be made right with God. That's sacrifice. That is love. Lord, sometimes we take that for granted. So this is just an opportunity. God, we just pray that you would reveal to us anything that we need to bring to you. Maybe some people in our lives that we need to point in your direction in loving ways. God, in this moment, I just pray that you would help us to reflect Jesus on your sacrifice for our sins. That we would just have an opportunity to spend some time restoring our relationship, our hearts with you. So we love you, we thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm just going to take a few moments here to reflect. And I uh, just encourage you to spend some time reflecting on your life, on your heart. If you have started a, an individual relationship with Jesus, this is the time to do what we call communion. You take the cups that we have. There's a little bread on the bottom. There's juice in the middle or on the top. And, and when you're ready, when you've had some time to talk with the Lord, reflect on what Jesus has done for us. Reflect on your heart. Maybe confess anything to him that may be going on in your heart, then take the, take the elements. We do it differently every time. This time we'll spend some individual time in reflection. So when you're ready, you can, you can take those elements. But if you haven't started that relationship with Jesus, just know it's as easy as approaching him with faith, like the, the man and his friends came to him with faith. And, and just, you can just invite him. You can just, or just receive his gift. Yes, I accept your free gift of salvation and I invite you to be Lord of my life. It's simple. It's very simple. And we would love to talk with you more about that if you have any questions or if you choose to take that step today. And so uh, communion is really reserved for those of us who have made that decision. And so I encourage you, if you haven't, do that and then take your first true communion. But make sure you let somebody know, maybe the person who brought you or one of our prayer 
uh, directors down in the front here or anybody who you've seen up on the stage, we would love to celebrate that with you and point you in some, uh, in some new directions uh, that will help you with that, with that journey. And I also think about just in our world right now, and we're going to spend some time reflecting and then I'm going to pray uh, for our world as well as, as we think about what's going on and then we think about this scene where Jesus looks at our issues and he sees what's going on on the outside and we, he sees why that matters to us, why that's so vital and important. But he also knows there is no solution outside of him. And so we're going to spend a couple of moments praying on that as well. So go ahead and reflect. When you feel ready, you can take the community. It could be, it could be in the next couple of minutes or it could be during the, during the last song, whenever you're, you feel ready to do that. And then we'll pray and also sing together before we close. Spend time in reflection.